Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. We are here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Jimmy Tobias, who's a contributor for The Nation, The Pacific Standard, and The Guardian, and who also used to be a trail worker. Tell us again. That's right. Yeah, I was a trail worker uh, on the for the Forest Service in Idaho and Montana. And the relevance yeah. of that will become momentarily <laughs> evident. And then we have Kristen Brengel, who is the Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Park Conservation Association. And you're about to have a 100th anniversary, Kristen, so congratulations. Thanks. I've also got Laura Redman, who is our Deputy Digital Director and uh, heads up our editorial team online. And we have Megan Sparrell, who is our Community Editor. And nobody here except for Jimmy and Kristen is a podcast newbie, so... You guys know all the voices. The topic of the week this week is we're going to take a look at the national parks. We are all big fans of the national parks here at Traveler. We cover them on a regular basis, and lots has been going on. There's been news for the last year, really, about the parks. And so I thought it would be a good time. This was actually my idea because I am a huge fan of the parks. And I thought it would be a good time to take a closer look at what has been going on and just update people, including myself, as to where things stand today. We're about to get into summer travel season. People will be visiting the parks. It's the high season. So we hope to give you a little bit of insight into what's been going on and what you can expect this year when you get out there and some of the background on that. So all of us have spent time in the parks here at Traveler. And I think we are in agreement that these are a sort of tremendous national resource. If you haven't visited the parks, there is bound to be one that's close to you. We can talk a little bit about that, but I I don't want to get into that too much today. I wanted to sort of jump right in and maybe start talking about since the Trump administration came on, there's been some personnel changes. Obviously, the park system sits beneath the Department of Interior. And so last year, I believe it was in May of last year, Zinke started, or was it in March that he started? It was March 1st that he was, um, that he was, that he was confirmed, the Senate confirmed him. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was early in the year. Well, he was one of the less controversial picks, I yeah. think, in many ways. Yeah, and we can talk a little bit about, you know, sort of his background and what he represents in terms of, you know, a policy position. But one of the things that he was tasked with by the president when he started was to do a review of... I believe it was 20 of the national monuments and what the policy position should be, make a recommendation to the president. And that was sort of the first stab into potential new policy positions around the parks. Can you, Jimmy, we talked about this a little bit earlier. We didn't get into it in too much detail, the difference between the monuments and the parks. Yeah, um, national monuments are created under the Antiquities Act independently by the executive branch, whereas Congress creates parks. But many people kind of see national monuments as a stepping stone to park creation. So like the Grand Canyon was a national monument before it became a national park. And so, and, and most of the monuments are managed by the National Park Service. So they're part of its, its system. But it's just a slightly lesser level of protection because it's not congressionally mandated. And so that's why in this case, they've been vulnerable to this sort of what I would say is a political attack on the Antiquities Act by this administration. How is that a political attack? um, There's just been a pretty large network of right-wing groups around the country that have been pushing both to transfer federal lands away from the government and hand them over to states or even to private entities. And many of those same groups have also kind of attacked the Antiquities Act as a government overreach. You know, that law is our old, like one of our oldest conservation laws. It was passed in 1906 and it's been, you know, it's sort of one of the foundational 
laws that undergird our conservation system. So it's not like it's a new thing. But, you know, it's lesser known than the parks, maybe not quite as popularly discussed. And so it's easier to go after it than, say, like going after Yellowstone. Like people would freak out. But um, when you go after a national monument, it's just like a little bit lesser known in many cases. And um, so there's just a lot of groups, many of them backed by the Koch Network and other organizations like that, that see federal lands in general as sort of like this socialist uh, anomaly in the, in the government. They don't want them to exist anymore or they, they see them as sort of federal tyranny, you know, like the armed takeover of the Malheur um, National Wildlife Refuge. All these things are kind of connected. And so the Trump administration has really, in some ways at least, embraced that narrative and that political stance. And so the review kind of came out of lobbying by legislatures and activists in places like Utah especially who don't want the federal government to be doing that sort of conservation work in many ways. And at least that's my opinion and my view on it. What was the outcome of that? I mean, it was very successful, this campaign. Um, they, the Trump administration initiated this review. They rolled back protections for the Bears Ears National Monument and the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in southern Utah. It's unprecedented. It's like the, lar- it's the largest rollback of protected land, I think, in United States history. And it was a pretty devastating blow to the integrity of the Antiquities Act. And now it will be challenged in the courts, and it could set a precedent that that could make a lot of other national monuments very vulnerable in the years ahead. When they were looking at that, it seemed to me like the question at hand was, how much space around the monument do you need in order to ensure protection of the monument? That's the sort of definition that they were asking, making sure that the, what is it, 100 thousand square acres or something around each monument or something like that that they have to have in order to protect it. Yeah, you know, these monuments go through like pretty extensive review of the artifact. You know, the Antiquities Act is meant to protect scientific and historical artifacts and places of value. And so they go through very rigorous reviews to determine um, what should be protected. So like in Bears Ears, there are all these Native American artifacts um, and cultural sites sprinkled throughout the region, and so they identified them and designated them to protect them and to protect the landscape from development and other things. And so while many groups kind of use the size as a reason to roll them back, I think really the objective is to weaken the Antiquities Act and weaken the ability of the federal government to set aside land and protect it for future generations because many, I mean, many of the groups that were involved in the rollback are groups with very specific development objectives in the area. So like there was a uranium company, for instance, that lobbied the Interior Department to roll back Bears Ears. And the people involved in many of the other groups have ties to the oil and gas industry. So there's very specific industrial interests that don't want these kinds of laws to really exist and to be used liberally by executive administrations. And so I think the real goal was to just weaken the, the, the laws that undergird our conservation system and protect our public lands. Kristen, when it comes to the national parks themselves, what are sort of the regulations around the use of land in the national parks and who governs all of that? What is the process? So the national parks are governed by a law called the Organic Act, and that was passed in 1916. So some national parks were created as early as 1872. That's That was Yellowstone. And so fast forward to 1916, and the Organic Act basically is one of the most forward-thinking conservation laws, you know, that happened at the turn of the century, and it proactively said, we're going to conserve these lands for future generations. And so 
it's pretty amazing that at that time, when you had timber harvesting uh, rampant, uh, you know, all over the country, and you had different types of mining and other extractive industries happening, that, you know, our Congress at the time saw the value and the beauty of, of these incredible places and said, we are going to proactively protect them and we are not going to allow extraction on these lands. We're going to protect the wildlife in them and not allow them to be poached or taken. And so it was it was kind of ahead of its time in, in many ways in terms of uh, being proactive. And just to be full disclosure, one of the main industries that wanted to protect national parks were railroad companies because they wanted the tourism. And so in many cases parks were born from this desire to want to attract tourists in the western areas during western expansion and so on and so that's why you know when you sometimes look at national parks you'll notice that the original way people got there were through railroads and Yellowstone is a really great example of that West Yellowstone was a huge rail town and now it's a big gateway community where people go and and that's where they dine and stay in hotels when they're going into the park but um it was this great tourism concept at the time but it also added all this wonderful protection so since then i mean fast forward 120 years or so and a lot of these parks are very heavily trafficked i think brad last year you talked about the crowds going through some of where were you you were in grand canyon bryce grand canyon bryce canyon zion um in California. Yosemite. Yosemite. Uh, sorry, that would be stress of life or <laughs> age. Um, Are there ways to responsibly travel to these parks now? I mean, especially as we come upon the summer months, should we avoid them in the summer months? Should What can well, we do? No, you should go there and you should enjoy it, but you should know that parking could be a challenge and, and you typically would want to go to a park like Zion where they have a shuttle bus system where you can park you know, at your hotel, walk into the town and take a free shuttle into the park and get dropped off at the various trailheads. But you can go early in the... I would say, highly suggest going early in the morning, especially if you're going to go to the Utah parks in the summer. It's going to be hot. So either go at dawn or dusk. But plan your trip ahead of time. Really think it through and make sure that you're just not sort of letting the day carry you and make sure you're getting to the sites that you really want to see. I was just at Arches a couple of months ago and I... There's a, a huge parking issue there, and the park service is, is in the midst of a visitor use plan where they're trying to figure out, should they do timed entry? Like when you go to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, yeah, yeah. you get a ticket with a time on it. Should you be doing that at Arches now? I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the maintenance and operational challenges that exist for the parks, because I think that's part of what has come up in the last year. But I would certainly say Arches being a great example of if you were to do something like that at Arches, there is something contraventive about that with respect to how people use the park. When I was there, they just kind of shut the gate down after a while, like everybody went home and people were still rolling in. Like you didn't have to pay the admission fee after 6 p.m. or something like that. And there were still people rolling in. There were still people there where the sun went down and, and hanging out and probably, I, I would imagine there was chemistry involved. Um, but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, let, let's look at Arches. Most of Arches is a wilderness. Yes. Most of it is wilderness, so you should be hiking and enjoying it and going to see the Arches that are hard to get to, but everyone wants to go to Delicate, and that creates a parking challenge because there's one road in, 
there's one lane in, one lane out. And so you go to Delicate, you hike all the way up to the tippy top, hopefully not in your flip-flops, which I saw a lot of people doing. <laughs> and wear shoes, everyone who's <laughs> listening to this, wear sneakers or boots. But you have people who want to see Delicate. You know, it's their once-in-a-lifetime chance to see it. So how do you make sure everyone gets a chance to and they're not circling a parking lot for an hour? I had a question that came up from when you were talking about the act. Is it possible to create a new park? Could a new park be created and what would that involve? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, during the New Deal, for instance, I think the Civilian Conservation Corps created like 800 parks around the country, both state and mostly state parks. But I mean, new parks can be created. And I mean, my opinion is we need a lot more parks um, and we need them closer to urban areas, closer to places that don't have parks in their area which might help like, you know, siphon some of the tourism away from some of these more iconic parks. But I mean, there's, there, I think there's a really great- What's the process? What would have to happen? Does it have to become a monument first and then a recreation area? How does, how does it become a park? I don't believe so. I think Congress designates parks. Is that, is that right, Kristen? They, it would just have to be Congress that designates a park? Yes, they can. Yeah. Is it a simple majority? Somebody just introduces a bill and, you know, 51 senators vote on it, um, you know, in a majority of, of the House? Or is it more complicated than that? It can definitely be more complicated than that, but that is the process. Do the states have any input into that? What would that process look like? So everyone in the state is just as much a constituent as, you know, everyone uh, else, uh, you know, with a member of Congress. And so typically you would get input from them. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Jimmy, the Grand Canyon. Part of the reason why the Antiquities Act was used to protect the Grand Canyon the first time, the Antiquities Act was actually used three times to establish Grand Canyon and expand it twice. And with the Grand Canyon, Arizona really opposed it, really opposed the designation of the park because there was so much mining happening and timber harvesting in the Kaibab National Forest next door. And so the president at the time uh, used the Antiquities Act and protected the first sort of layer of the Grand Canyon. And so sometimes states can get their congressional delegation to oppose a park proposal. What we've seen lately, quite honestly, is that regardless of party, we've seen quite a few national park proposals and park expansions in Congress. And, and we're actually working through a couple of them right now, including one in Georgia that Senator Isaacson is moving forward. It's Okmulgee Mounds, and it's already a national monument, and we're looking to expand it to protect more of it. And so congressional folks love new national parks and they love park expansions, regardless of party. Everyone wants to be the guy or the woman that got a park <laughs> established. And they love it when we show up in their office with an award for it too. <laughs> um, and so we actually in 2014, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, Title 30 of that bill, there were a host of new parks that were established and some of the Obama monuments became congressionally established parks. I'd say that they definitely love to create them, but it doesn't seem like they like to fund them enough. I was going to say, so <laughs> talk about maybe, Kristen, this is good one for you, like to talk a little bit about what's involved with caring for a park and maintaining it. So everything. So in a lot of cases, parks are towns and so they require management and funding and wildlife management and um, interpretation and rangers to make sure that there's enforcement and so parks need all of that in addition to trails and roads and bridges and culverts and all of those things and so unless it's a historic home and then it needs to be taken care of like a home 
you know, so many places are historic homes. Charles Young was one of the newer parks that was brought into the system. That's mostly a house. And so it depends on the unit, but every one of them needs love and needs attention and, and staff. Quick quiz question. How many national parks are there in the U.S.? And, and then part two, how much does it cost to maintain some of the bigger ones? So there are 417 national park units, and that's everything from national parks, NP national parks, national recreation areas to seashores and lakeshores. And it really depends on the amenities, and that's even how fees are structured in the various national parks. And so Yellowstone is 2.2 million acres. It collects quite a few fees, but the budget for Yellowstone is enormous relative to its sister parks because it's basically mammoth in the middle of it was where the park service staff are, but that's also where some of the housing is and amenities and lodges. And so um, just the upkeep of it, because it's a caldera and there are earthquakes every day in the park. Hmm. So the management of it is incredible in terms of what they face, in addition to having lots of snow to move and lots of wildlife issues and so on. And so, you know, millions upon millions of dollars to manage that park. Same thing with the Grand Canyons, but the smaller parks or the more wilderness-oriented parks don't actually have as large a budget as those parks that have more amenities. A lot of this is invisible to people because when you go to the parks, you'll see, you know, maybe some ranges, you'll see a lot of people working at the park, driving trams and working various things, but there's all kinds of invisible people working on the parks, everything from scientists to botanists to, for I don't know what you even call it, forestry Scientists. Well, the role that Jimmy had. Trail workers. Trail Trail workers. Rangers. You mentioned the Kaibab National Forest, which is in the Grand Canyon area. There's an entire sort of team of scientists that work on that forest and and work on rehabilitating that forest and practicing sort of sustainable forestry. And they're constantly doing burns and they're doing research and all of that stuff is invisible. Is that all funded? Are all of those people employees of the Department of the Interior? Mostly. I mean, you know, there's Fish and Wildlife Service science, scientists, there's Park Service scientists, there's Forester. You know, there's a wide range of agencies, and sometimes they work together. But almost all of it is under the DOI except the Forest Service, which is under the USDA. Oh, it is. Okay, uh-huh. so the, those yeah. two agencies have to work together. When those, yeah, sometimes, uh, yeah. Which must be somewhat frequent. Like Yeah, yeah, they often and, share space. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, it reminds me, I was in Yosemite this past summer and I remember there were so many different like institutions for dealing with bears. So they had the lockers, they had, you know, all these facts around what to do if you see one. And when I got home and read into it, they also had a way that you could track all the different bears in the forest and all these different really interesting ways to like learn about the bears. And all I could think was, who does this? Like who, (laughs) who is managing this online platform where you can watch the bear and where he's moving around the park? Yeah, I think just when you talk about the invisible people who are working on the parks, there's so many different resources for all of them. And I think the obvious ones of the rangers and then really unexpected ones like that. Let me just give you some advice too. By far the greatest experience you can have in a park is going out with one of the wildlife biologists and having them show you where all the the critters are. Um, How do you do that? Do you have to you call book it in advance? Up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, call them up and, and tell them, you know, who you are. And I have to tell you, some of the greatest experiences I've ever had have been with the wildlife biologists in the Everglades looking for Florida Ooh. panthers, <laughs> wow. Yellowstone ah, looking for wolves. <laughs> and you don't see beaver all the time or whatever, but then you're out with a wildlife biologist and they'll say, oh, I'm going to take you to a spot. You know, and then you see the largest beaver you've ever seen in your life. And 
I was just in the Everglades a couple of weeks ago and, and saw a little spot in a river where there were five manatees playing with each oh, other. Wow. I mean, it's the coolest thing. And, and I highly recommend if you if you can hook up with a wildlife biologist at a visitor center at a park, absolutely go out with those folks. Well, wait, wait. How big is the biggest beaver in the world? <laughs> I saw one a couple of weeks. It was enormous. <laughs> it was like a, it was like the size of a small bear. Um, oh my god! You know what? A beaver? <laughs> I know. I know because it's funny because wow. you know I I'm here in D.C. and and Shenandoah has a ton of bears, ton of black bears, and you know and then you go, you know, out west to Montana. I'm sure Jimmy's seen them, and it's just like the size comparison. And then but you go out west and everything just is bigger. Right. 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 Well, quick PSA too. What do you do if you come across a black bear if you're out on a hike in one of these parks? Thank Don't you. scare it. Yeah, the same thing you probably <laughs> would do with a grizzly bear or anything. Just kind of like talk quietly, get together with Wait. your friends, walk away. I, I thought, thought you were supposed, supposed to, be big. to scare it. Yeah. I think you're only supposed to scare it if it gets aggressive. Like mm. if if it gets aggressive, you can like wave your arms and stuff. But I think the knowledge right. I was always taught was like to just kind of like leave it alone, back away, stick together. And hope it doesn't okay. come, at, come okay. after you. At, at the risk of, you know, I, I think to protect the people, I have to share what I'm reading <laughs> on the Yosemite <laughs> website. If you are in a developed area or if a bear approaches you, act immediately to scare it away. Make as much noise as possible by yelling very loudly. And I think that's true if it approaches you or like okay. if it's coming at, like if it's coming for you. But okay. I think if you just exceed like, on the trail and it's just like doing its thing, you don't want to like. Don't get its attention. Right. Like, just leave it. Like those yeah. people on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> do, do not <laughs> come into in the, the line of sight. Leave well enough alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have been 10 feet away from a mama black bear with two cubs in Whoa. Shenandoah, and she didn't care. Yeah. She just kept doing mm-hmm. her thing. And as long as you don't do anything wacky, right. just keep moving along. Never threaten the cubs, obviously. Mm, yeah. Don't get in between mom the and the cubs. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all of that work and all of those people cost money. Jimmy, this is something you've written about a couple of times in the last in the last year. The Park Service has a maintenance backlog of twelve billion. I yeah, believe, roughly. Roughly, and the Forest Service has a maintenance backlog of five billion. And all of those incredibly excited tourists can't be helping all of that. I was wondering, what is some of the work that's involved there? Like, what needs to be done? There's just a lot of repairs that need to be done. Like trails need to get built and updated. Roads need to be fixed. Buildings need to be fixed water systems need, need to be fixed there's just as Kristen said these are like some of these places are like small towns and there's an enormous need to revitalize them and Congress in my opinion has just totally shirked its duty to fund what is essentially one of those popular egalitarian institutions in the country well there um, is a funding mechanism that you've written about what is the funding mechanism that, that well happens? there's a number I mean really it's about congressional appropriations um, there is the land and water Conservation Fund, which right. is, I think, my, what that that's might be. What yeah, that's, that's what you're referencing. Of. Yeah, that, I mean, that draws money from offshore oil and gas drilling, and it's supposed to be funded, I think, at $900 million a year, but Congress yes. always funnels most takes, of the money takes away. It and spends yeah, it in a different right. place. And that program is for expanding, obtaining new land, funding local projects and state projects, and for a variety of other things. But the main thing, in my and, and the thing I think, would be really amazing is if Congress was able to create a jobs program to put young people, to put other people to work on the lands, sort of like the Civilian Conservation Corps, which did so much for our country's conservation system. And even um, 
the Eisenhower administration. They I was going to ask called, you about Mission 66. Yeah, Mission 66. They, I think it was um, like a billion dollars over 10 years after World War II, and they fixed so many parks. They f- did, did what needed to be done because the parks had been sort of neglected during the war. So this is not a new thing. This that is not the parks a new thing. It's just that maintenance, and they need investment. The parks need maintenance. The parks need investment, and there's no way to get around it except for Congress to spend the money that needs to be spent. And I think in doing so, they could put a lot of people to work, and also in doing so, just like kind of create a whole generation of conservationists because people who work on the lands end up falling in love with the lands, and that's what happened to me, and that's what happened to everyone I know who ever did any work on the public lands. I mean, it's just like a magical experience. So I think there's a great opportunity for people who, to embrace that um, political platform, which is not what many people seem to be doing. So I can totally walk out for 20 seconds and just tell people what is a deferred maintenance backlog. Please. Yeah. Okay. I'm sitting in front of this pie chart. Um, (laughs) 50% of the maintenance backlog is roads or road-related so it's bridges, tunnels, things like that. Which is That's critical. Things. It's critical for ac- it's critical for access, right? People Absolutely. can't. Absolutely. Yeah. Hundred percent. The other half are waterfront structures like marinas, piers, things like that. Fortifications, because remember, a lot of parks are old forts and military battlefields. That's fortifications are four percent. Those kinds of buildings, eighteen percent. Water and wastewater systems, 6%. Trails is only 4%. And then sort of maintain landscapes, which are historic features, things like that. So you have to remember, parks are everything from these amazing cultural sites like Bandelier in New Mexico, where you you know, go into cliff dwellings, and they have to be maintained, and the ladders have to be maintained, and the trails, to historic homes like Frederick Douglass's house here in D.C., to the Washington Monument, to the Lincoln Memorial, to Yellowstone, to Acadia. You know, and Acadia is all islands and, you know, a a lot of sort of water-based property where you're taking boats out to everywhere. And so so the parks have it all. And and people don't realize that as we have this conversation is that we're talking about every kind of, you know, place you could possibly think of. They're in the park system. And so they need all different kinds of maintenance, caves, cave-dwelling, you know, I mean, it's just insane how there's such a variety and the maintenance backlog is only $11.6 billion. So are there beloved parks like Yosemite, like Acadia, that are facing a severe maintenance backlog? Like, are there some that are at risk right now? So here's two incredible things about the maintenance backlog. Um, One is the Yellowstone Loop Road. The road that you take to go see Norris Geyser Basin, Grand Prismatic, Old Faithful, that road, the roadbed of it is still the old stagecoach road. Wow. (laughs) Okay. No kidding. When you got off the train, like I was saying before, you took a stagecoach into the park. Now there are these massive RVs driving on this road. And by the way, the earthquakes that happen every day, (laughs) those are still happening. (laughs) Okay. So that road needs a lot of repair to make sure it can withstand these humongous RVs and tour buses and so on. And so that has to get fixed. So that's over $100 million. Grand Canyon. This is the most incredible thing. The South Rim, the popular place, the place you want to get your picture taken. The Griswolds were there. You know, <laughs> I'm aging myself. No, good shout no, out. No, 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 absolutely. But that 
the South Rim has one water pipeline that skims the South Rim and brings water to that whole area where all the lodges are and where people are going to the visitor center. And it bursts constantly. Oh, that's nuts. Constantly. It's over $150 million to replace it. And it has to happen or there are going to be a lot of problems for visitors who want to go to the South Rim and have their, you know, once in a lifetime experience. And so these are things that just in some cases just have to get fixed. It's not the kind of thing where you can just bring in any old contractor and just like beat down the price, right? This has to be done very delicately. You're talking about an operation in the middle of the Grand Canyon. On the rim of the Grand Canyon. On the rim of the Grand Canyon. (laughs) No, it's it's in the canyon. They have to take a helicopter and, you know, let people get in with a helicopter to fix this thing. Yeah. How far down? Like down to the Colorado or where... How? It's 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 all over the place in terms of the south rim. It just depends on the spot, but it leaks all the time. Wow. Yeah. So okay. yeah, it's intense. It's wilderness, you know. So lots of work. It sounds like really important work, foundational. Really could prohibit people from accessing the parks if it doesn't get done at some point in the future. And so last fall, Zinke and the Interior had a proposal for how they were going to address this. Jimmy, can you talk through what was their proposal? Yeah, they wanted to sharply increase uh, user fees at 17 of the most popular parks, including the ones we've been talking about, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, uh, Yellowstone, Yellowstone, Denali, Denali, Glacier, Glacier, yeah. um, All the big ones. And yeah, they would have increased, I, I believe they wanted to increase some, in peak season, People would have been required to pay as much as seventy dollars to enter the park per person, and that's an, that's close to an annual fee. I mean, annual fee that, is a, often eighty. Isn't yeah, it? Yes. Uh, I'm, it depends on. I think I know you're seventy. There's different 60, passes. Yeah. yeah, the America the Beautiful pass that yeah. gets you access to all public lands, all federal public lands, is eighty bucks. So yes, yeah, so, so like as much, yeah, and and it was uh, for individual automobiles. So yeah, like a family, you okay. know, would have to pay that collectively. And the typical pass in a lot of these parks is closer to 20, I think, 20, 30. Yeah, right. exactly. That 30. even feels expensive. I feel most of them are Some like, of the bigger ones. Yeah. yeah. but Yeah, 10. not all parks have yeah. um, mm-hmm. fees and not all parks have, and some parks have different sorts of fees, but mm-hmm. the popular ones, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, it was a very, it was shocking to see that kind of- It was of controversial. A, it was extremely controversial. They got about 100,000 comments from the public, which is why they ended up backing off of the idea. Um, but you know, people. What was the logic behind that, though? What was their argument? Well, they said that um, you know they wanted to use those fees to help pay for the maintenance backlog, the deferred maintenance backlog. But the amount of revenue they would take in was only a tiny sliver of the it was like more seventy than million a, a year, right? yeah, something like that. And 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 it's just a tiny sliver of what is needed. And also, you know, pe- you know, there were a lot of comments from people in Congress about how it would exclude low-income people, it would exclude people, communities of color from being able to access these parks and just make it sort of an elitist space. And and so, it was, yeah, it was incredibly controversial. And they ended up backing off of it just not long ago, in fact. But it, it's sort of this approach to the parks that, to me, feels like sort of like a Disney World approach. It's like, emblematic of the bigger argument, right? Like yeah, between, it's very emblematic between the, of the two bigger different argument. positions about how the parks should be approached. Exactly. Like, there's one. I think there's one group of people who feel very strongly that these are like our, some of our most important egalitarian institutions. They belong to all Americans. They should be accessible to everyone. They should be fully funded and like a vibrant space for people to have some of the best experience of their lives. And others who want to turn them into like sort of 
um, like Disney World, where you have to pay an exorbitant fee, and there's all these amenities, and you know, there's cell phone towers everywhere. And so, um, has that been proposed actually to put cell phone? Oh, there towers? are there already are cell phone towers in oh, some wow. of these parks. Um, so, and there's Starbucks that you are they disguised you know? as trees? Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. Those pine trees. Yeah. Um, but again, there's a lot of political forces that are adamant that that's the vision for the parks that they have. People on Secretary Zinke's Outdoor Recreation Advisory Committee are some of those people. What's the other side of this equation? We all have a strong feeling right. uh, about the preservation of parks. What is the argument against it? I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone openly arguing against parks because everyone recognizes that they're incredibly popular. But I do think there are people who adamantly push for increased user fees, who adamantly push for more sort of commercialization in parks to make them like more like multi-use space so to speak yeah like more like um to offset the cost so like i think this is part of the argument is okay you start with the user fees and that doesn't cover the full cost so then you go back and you say well we can't raise the user fees anymore so what are other ways that we can offset mm-hmm. these costs and so then privatization or mixed use becomes an answer for that because you say okay well we can charge private enterprise to come onto the land and lease it and that will then I mean and some of that already happens at all these parks right like the hotels that are in Yellowstone and that are in Yosemite are paying some kind Mm -hmm. of lease in order to be there and I think that's gone back if I'm not mistaken Kristen since the founding of Yosemite right like wasn't there a hotel there from the very beginning if I remember correctly there are facilities inside of parks that have been there for a really long time, and people cherish them. I mean, the Awani, which is now called the Majestic. Yeah. Um, it's very is... confusing. It's because all the signage when I was there still said Awani on it. Uh, when I was no. there, it had the old name and the new name, yes. which was even worse. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a dispute that is still unresolved in terms of the, you know, the previous concessioner that was running the Awani. and you know, a fight over copyright of who owns the names of the parks and the places and so on. And so, but these lodges, people love them. People love, I have to say, it's really fun to stay right next to Old Faithful um, (laughs) at night at two o'clock in the morning and hear wolves howling and stuff. I mean, that's a cherished experience that people have, but it's part of the park experience. If you want to have a totally wilderness experience, there are lots of great BLM lands like the Grand Staircase of Scalani in Utah where you can go and, and have a full-on wilderness experience without all of that. But part of the enticement of parks for people is that there are these amenities there. And so the concessioners are charged a fee when they sign a contract for however many years that they do it. But Jimmy's right. You know, there's a delicate balance of privatization versus keeping things sort of egalitarian and and sort of, um, you know, for the people. And the Obama administration started to inch toward a little bit more privatization. Uh, They actually rewrote the policies on donations and recognition for people who donate to parks. And there was a huge debate several years ago about what was tasteful and what was not tasteful. To um, give them more recognition? So to if you give could, more recognition, yeah. If you were a donor, you would get more visibility. Or like a name right. attached to the park? So, yeah. no. Uh, like you know, the Gates Glacier National Park <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> no, that would be... no, but there was a huge debate, and we, we had it with so the administration about whether or not even vans could go around a park with a wrap, you know, an advertisement wrap around oh, it and, wow. Wow. and things like that. and. And we had huge discussions about what the fine line was between giving a donor recognition inside a visitor center or outside a visitor center. 
and I think that will continue to be a debate in parks. And, and there was a hearing last week on deferred maintenance in the Senate. And a topic that kept coming up through the course of the hearing was public-private partnership. And now it's called P3, and I, I hate acronyms like that, but mm. it's, it's, it's it, how do you entice philanthropic giving so that they help to repair parks, kind of like how Rubenstein did the Washington Monument and the Arlington House. And there's philanthropy a pr- there's has a always played a role. It's always played a role in parks, always. Philanthropy has always been a big park. In fact, we wouldn't even have Grand Teton and Acadia if philanthropy didn't play a role in parks. But, you know, there are all of these debates right now about privatization, philanthropy, you know, it's it's and it's going to continue to be an issue. It's always been an issue. Yeah, and even I mean, even within the conservation community, it's you know, it's a de- internal debate. It seems, but it definitely seems like this administration is heading very quickly in the direction of more privatization. Right. And 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 I think you were saying it, Jimmy. The new committee that you know you have, you know, this administration on one hand not communicating with the National Park Service Advisory Board, and that everyone massively, you know, in one mass quitting because. Right. Zinke wouldn't even take a meeting with them. And then you have this new recreation committee that's loaded with all industry people, snowmobile industry. Concessionaires. Um, you know, concessionaires, everyone like that. And in the case of that committee, one of our board members, Denny Galvin, who's a former deputy director of the Park Service, worked at the Park Service mm-hmm. in many national parks for almost 40 years. His application for sitting on the committee was denied. Oh, my Wow. And yet the snowmobilers are on oh, it. My. And Den- so, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, you know where this is headed. <laughs> right. De- and Dennis was the one who I heard in a House committee talking about Mission 66 and the need for a new one, which is interesting. Yeah, but yeah. That's such a, which is such a different view of the parks than, than what these other interests that Christian um, was just describing. Well, have. yeah. Denny ran the Denver Service Center where most of the planning for parks happens. No one mm. knows the national parks better than Denny Galvin. And he was denied. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, but you have to have a sense of humor about this stuff, I guess. <laughs> well, yes, until it's not funny anymore. Right. And it's getting there. It's getting to the point. point where it's not funny. Um, where are things right now? Is there any active legislation, for example, that's being proposed? What latitude do Secretary Zenke and Deputy Director Bernhardt, who is also from the oil and gas lobbying industry and is the second in command there, what latitude do they have? What do they need Congress to get involved with? How far can they push their vision? Well, you know, it's really interesting, and I was just talking to some of our staff and board about this, but when you look at Zinke's end of the year, you know, sort of wrap up as 2017, you know, my vision of the universe, it's deregulation, it's energy dominance, but you didn't see park protection or conservation on the list. And so energy is actually the issue and a lot of that is driven exactly by the name that you just said mr bernhardt Mm -hmm. who when he worked for the bush administration that was his agenda too yeah and what we're seeing is oil and gas leasing right up against so many national park units and we've been talking about utah a lot many of these leases are happening hove and weep dinosaur not too far from Canyonlands and all of those places and, and Chaco in New Mexico. And we're seeing a huge set of leases that are not so far from Great Sand Dunes in Colorado. And so basically we're seeing the sort of no holds barred energy dominance agenda. We also know that the administration is going to revise the five-year offshore drilling plan. Yeah. 
they're in the midst of it. The comet period, I think, just ended recently. And how many national park units do you have on the east and west coast? Tons. Everything from Fort Sumter to the Outer Banks and, and Cape Hatteras to Acadia. And then, you know, Point Reyes and, and Channel Islands. And Channel Islands in the 80s had an oil spill off the coast. And so this administration is sort of moving in that direction. And, and that's really one of the big threats. It's not, it's not just sort of a daydream or, or, you know, us supposing it's happening. And Congress did not pass an energy bill, which they desperately wanted to in 2016. There were so many proposals, and a lot of these have been reintroduced. Those bills aren't moving. So what happens when that is the case? You see the administration under current law on BLM lands moving forward with the agenda. And I don't work on on refuge issues, but the Arctic is now threatened. And so you're seeing a push right now. And in some cases, these leases are going for nothing or people aren't even buying them. And so there are only a couple of plays where people are buying these oil and gas leases, but there are tons that are going for $2 an acre. Wow. And so we're giving these places away. We're giving our future away. And so like, okokay, let me just ask you a question about that because I know Murkowski has been a big ally for these guys. And I know, you know, that's Alaska. I know she's been wanting for years to have drilling there. You would think, I would think, that at the very least, you would want to get top dollar for the use of these lands, right? Given the nature of them, and if you're going to allow people to use them, at the very least, we could get top dollar and raise a lot of money and make this issue go away and address the federal deficit and so on and so forth. Is this just doing favors for people who are making campaign contributions? Is that what it comes down to? I mean, yeah, you know, Secretary Zinke has surrounded, I mean, it's not just David Bernhardt, it's, he's surrounded himself all the political appointees in the Interior Department, yeah. almost all of them are industry lawyers or lobbyists, or they came from, you know, ideological groups that oppose conservation. You know, just last week, for instance, there was a, a top political appointee who got caught basically delaying an endangered species protection after receiving an email from the oil and gas industry about it. And the, That's been Bernhardt's thing since the yeah, Bush this, administration. This is DeVito, but yeah, like it's a similar culture. And it just really seems like they care about one thing, which is the fossil fuel industry. And they'll throw conservation as a bone here and there, kind of. But, you know, the attack on the Antiquities Act was such a sort of a radical thing to do. At least in my mind, that that is the most shocking of what they've done. But it, it definitely it, it's just I didn't realize how radical that was. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't really understand that was a serious shot across the bow. That's why people impressive. got so upset. And you know this why, all is happening. Why you know, why do you think the Bush people, even when Bernhardt was there and he was the solicitor, yeah. which means he was the top lawyer at Interior, yeah. he didn't even go after the Antiquities Act during the Bush administration because it's so controversial. Right. This was a pretty incredible thing to do after over a hundred years of protecting national parks and other public lands to basically reinterpret the law that has been interpreted the same way. Grand Staircase already went to court. And that was that signed. That was already upheld in a Utah court <laughs> that it was a valid national monument and that it was there to protect the objects. It was bold and, to go you know, in and say it didn't deserve protection. And then it was furthermore more bold to 
not protect the contiguous acres specifically for coals, for two leases that were already paid for by the American public, by the taxpayers, and ratified by Congress. This was just unbelievable and shocking that they would do this. And, and I love Grand Staircase, and I hope one day it does become a national park. It deserves the status, but it was bold on so many levels. It was it flies in the face of the courts that already said it was a, a well-established monument. And then it also, the fact that Congress paid for these coal leases already, and it just sort of reopens that Pandora's box. And so it's pretty dramatic. And the fact that they're hanging out there with <laughs> about, what, uh, 18 other monument proposals that they haven't right. said finally. So They're I still on, reviewing I, them, I worked, kind of. Yeah, I worked on the Katahdin Woods and Waters National mm. Monument in Maine, which was donated by a philanthropic family that believes in conservation. And they also put an endowment towards the monument to help facilitate infrastructure in the park unit. They're just being hung out there right now by Zinke. He yeah. hasn't said he hasn't said what he's going to do to that monument. All we keep hearing from his folks, and I brought it up when I saw him. I bring it up every time I see one of these interior officials, and they haven't decided what they're going to do. They just keep talking about timber harvesting. Well, that's not what the family wanted when they donated the property. They wanted it protected as conservation lands. And so you're not only flying in the face of the basic Park Service laws, but the very family that donated the land for conservation, you're also flipping them off. I'd also just so, add that the, 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 I think the thing about the Antiquities Act was also like, you know, it's so old. It was such a symbolic move. It was, the law was signed by Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. which, you know, yeah. Zinke claims to kind of have, you know, be, be aligned with his hair. Right. right. He claims he's like a Theodore Roosevelt Republican, but yeah. um, it just couldn't be more untrue. Yeah. What can people do if they are fans of the parks and they are concerned about this? Because it, it seems like they are responsive to public input, right? They've walked back the fee increase, which is a good sign because a lot of people were very upset about that. I mean, let's face it, the the parks are one of the most popular tourist destinations, not just in the U.S., but in the world, right? And people come from all over the world to go to the parks here. What can people do if they want to influence this process in one way or another? I really think what needs to change is that the anti-government view has kind of become the dominant narrative and, they, and, and, and people who are coming from that, whether you want to call them conservative or something else, have really kind of um, shaped the narrative around public lands in general. It would be so great to see like a bold vision coming out about the parks from people, you know, like a vision that talks about putting hundreds of thousands of people to work on the public lands, building more, like an, a, a, a sort of an offensive posture from the conservation community, where I feel like now at least very much the conservation community, not everybody, but very much is on defensive. And it would just be so great to change the narrative and, and, and really try to link in people's minds the role that public lands play as sort of a political, social, democratic institution, that small d democratic, that kind of um, brings everyone together and, and, and just, uh, just a big, bold vision that can kind of change the way we're talking about it right now because it just feels like it's all about trying to just stop budget cuts and you know get a park past here get a park past there and of course making their voices heard in comments and staying and visiting them i think being on the land is one of the most important things because that really is what makes people want to protect it you know in the long run is having a personal relationship with the land 
let's start that revolution. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, from no, your I, perspective, what, yeah. do you, what, so, what do you... I have to almost be apologetic. I'm a DC person, so I apologize for that. So I, I agree. Go out and enjoy the land and, and make sure that you're taking a picture of yourself in whatever national park you go to, send it to your member of Congress and say, I was just here. Please protect this place. That will get their attention. Tweet at them. Make sure that they know that you just absolutely love these places and don't want them to deteriorate or be less protected. And so when you're at Arches, you know, tweet at your member of Congress and say, I don't want oil and gas drilling near Arches. I want Bears Ears protected and you need to fix, you know, make sure that this place is getting the dollars it needs to be fixed. And so, but in terms of the monuments, we need to continue to send in mail to the Interior Department and to the White House telling them to stop this, stop this effort to weaken our national monuments. In fact, they should be looking at places to protect as national monuments, not weakening this law. So that would be one aspect. The other thing is that there's a, a bill in the House, there are tons of bills to dismantle the Antiquities Act, but one in the House that's very sinister, it's H.R. 3990. It's been introduced by the chairman of the Natural Resources Committee from Utah, and it would dismantle the Antiquities Act as we know it. It would actually redefine what could be protected, and it would make sure there could never be another Grand Canyon protected, never another Bears Ears protected. So it's it's terrible law and everyone should be writing their member of Congress and saying oppose HR 3990. Okay. In terms of the something positive and proactive, like Jimmy was saying, we have a great bill in Congress. It's called the National Park Service Legacy Act. It's got incredible bipartisan support on the Senate and House sides. It seeks to repair the parks over 30 years and we need all the support we can get to try to move this forward and there's already been hearings on the house side on the bill there's going to be hearings on the senate side on the bill and we could use all the supporters possible who are listening to this podcast to let their member of congress know that they support fixing the national parks hashtag fix our parks and to support the national park service legacy act are I'll there, add one more. Yeah. Um, are there ways with, that we can donate or act like you did, like working in a park? Are there very like on the ground ways? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I would add one last thing, okay. one other bill that I really like, and this one is by Marcy Captor, and it's the 21st Century Civilian Conservation Corps Act, which would set aside like $16 billion to create a new civilian conservation corps and could immediately fix many of our deferred maintenance problems and put tons of people to work. I um, mean, it would be awesome. And it would get a lot of people on the land, which I think is incredibly important. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a you know there are so many ways to get involved in. How do you start? You know, you look up people in your community who are doing trail work or who are taking care of you know friends of like this Google monument. trail work. Yeah, yeah. Go- or TK Google like if you friends don't know of anybody. Say you like you know say you're here in New York. There's mm-hmm. Stonewall National Monument, which is one of the newest national monuments in the country, um, dedicated to the LGBT community. You can look up like Friends of Stonewall National Monument and they'll probably have, you know, a fundraiser or a volunteer day or and, you know, you can go and get to meet your fellow public lands enthusiasts and get involved <laughs> and maybe they'll have a party or whatever. Um, and there's groups like that all over the country who are kind of the backbone of the conservation movement, people who are getting out on the land and really involved. And I feel like I would Google 
whatever is nearest to you and get involved and right. something will come yeah, up and sure. follow that and, Google trail. And we have regional offices. We have 27 field offices throughout the country and PCA does. And you can look us up and you can find one of our field offices and we can connect you to whatever kind of project you want. We also worked on Stonewall in New York City and we can connect you to all the folks who do that great work. And the Student Conservation Association is also another great organization to hook up with to do trail work and and i agree with the friends groups are amazing and and um great to work with i want to just reiterate the first thing that you guys touched on which is go visit the parks it is the season when things were very crowded you can totally manage it um it's yeah sure if you want to go in the off season that's great too it's probably less crowded but also the weather might not be as good so but they are absolutely incredible and i would completely agree i think this is probably the experience that we've all had is when you go and when you visit, you cannot come away from that without a deep sense of how incredibly valuable and rare this is. They are unique in the world. They are utterly majestic, um, not just for the United States, but for what nature can do and be. And, you know, I just think getting out and seeing these things is something that everybody should do. So I wanted to finish by asking you guys really quickly What's your favorite park experience? Laura, what's your favorite park experience? I was hoping you'd ask that because <laughs> I was going to ask that if you didn't. Um, Olympic National Park in Washington State. I lived in Seattle for four years, so I got out there a couple times. But it's a gorgeous, diverse park that has mountains, rainforest, ocean, um, beachside hikes. It's dense and you know you leave feeling healthier and happy about the world. You know. It, like you're talking about these parks, they um, they make you feel proud to be American each time you go to one because you're like, you can't believe how diverse this country is. Agreed. Megan? Uh, it's so hard to choose, but one experience in a park that stood out the most was when I got to camp in Yosemite in the Lower Pines. And there's two campgrounds. Everyone said I would never get one in summer. I found one spot on one night that was open like a month before. And I got to wake up looking at El Capitan and the Half Dome and I spent $20 to have that experience and I could not get over that. Like I felt like really proud that that's something we have in our country and I was living in San Francisco at the time and I got in my car and drove a few hours and had like a life-changing experience for, you know, cheaper than I spent on a meal here in New York. So I think camping and like especially for people who don't camp a lot, finding places that are so worth no hotel will give you that view of being completely surrounded by redwoods and Half Dome. At yeah. your feet. Yeah. Jimmy? I'm going to cheat a little bit. And I probably my most, my favorite park adjacent experience, I took a, like a six-day backpacking trip in the Jedediah Smith Wilderness in Wyoming, right on the edge of the Grand Teton um, National Park. And it was just like these big U-shaped, glaciated valleys and like the best stars I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it, it, it was just so incredibly beautiful and way high up and... It, it just felt like a time was like a totally different thing. You know, it was just like yeah. the most um, fulfilling experience. And yeah, and also free <laughs> for the most part, yeah. Kristen, tough one for you. I know, and I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but I'm just going to say it's magical because I think <laughs> that's a great word. Um, Cumberland Island National Seashore off the coast of Georgia. And it's, the coast of Georgia is very small. Cumberland Island was owned by the Carnegies and then donated by them. And it has wild horses, armadillo, alligators. It's incredible 
palmettos and you get lost in this place and it's a wilderness island. Mm. So you hike it and you enjoy it and you've got beaches and swamps and, and it's just absolutely lovely. And you take a ferry from St. Mary's in Georgia over to it. So even the ride overs, all this great anticipation. And so I highly recommend, and you can camp there too. You can get camping permits, but if you want to have a completely great wilderness magical experience, it's a just gorgeous place. I'm going to go with Canyonlands, getting out into the backcountry. We hired these guys to take us on four wheels out to do hiking in Canyonlands and the Needles sort of section of the park. And it was like something from another planet, just the most extraordinary thing that I think I've ever seen. That's something you could kind of say about almost all of these parks at some point or another. So for me, it was more just like the combination of riding over these crazy pathways that weren't pathways and then getting into the backcountry and really seeing these extraordinary, extraordinary rock formations and, and valleys and just things that really did not seem of this earth. So that would be mine. But, you know, you can't go wrong. They're all fantastic. So get out there and enjoy them this summer. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Visit us at cntraveler.com. Do subscribe also to the Women Who Travel podcast, which is in the midst of its second season right now. Meredith and Lale doing some really, really great podcasts that you do not want to miss. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. And please do tweet at us. Let us know your favorite National Park experience. We would love to talk to you about that and hear from you about that. Send us feedback and review us on iTunes. And Kristen, how can people get in touch with you or with the Conservation Association if they want to? You can find us at npca.org and you can share a My Park story or send us a note over email and we'll get right back to you. Jimmy, how can people get in touch with you? They can find me on Twitter. I'm at, at James C. Tobias. James C. Tobias, mm-hmm. all one word? Yeah. Okay. Laura? I'm at Laura underscore Redman on Instagram and at Danon825 on Twitter. Megan? I'm at Spirelli, so S-P-U-R-R-E-L-L-Y on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Bradrick. Thanks to all of you guys for coming. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, Thank you. It was really great to get updated on this. I feel informed now and empowered to express my love of the parks. Um, have a great weekend, Thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you.